0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm Robert Diab, an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at Thompson Rivers University and a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Bruce Baugh of Thompson Rivers University about his new book, Existential Monday, Philosophical Essay. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm Robert Diab, an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at Thomson Rivers University and a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Bruce Baugh of Thomson Rivers University about his new book, Existential Monday, Philosophical Essays, which is a translation of a collection of writings of the Romanian philosopher Benjamin Fondan, who lived in Paris from roughly the 1920s to the mid-40s. The book was published by the New York Review of Books in 2016. Although Fondan has until now been better known as a poet, his contributions to existential thought in the 1930s and 40s have been gaining wider attention in recent years. His work bears relevance to contemporary debates in critical theory by anticipating some of its central concerns and preoccupations, including the critique of reason and of the subject, and thought that grapples with the ineffable or the impossible. Fondan's principal interlocutors included the Russian religious existentialist Lev Shestov, Albert Camus, and Soren Kierkegaard. Central themes in his thinking relate to the limits of logic or rationality, the primacy of individual experience, and the insights to be gained from paradoxes at the heart of certain religious texts. Professor Baugh's work on Fondan will be of interest to a wide variety of readers seeking a better understanding of a thinker whose work invites consideration alongside his better-known contemporaries, Walter Benjamin and the early Levinas, among others. Bruce, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Thanks very much, Robert, and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's it's a real pleasure to be here. I was born in Esterhazy, Saskatchewan, Which is the middle Canadian Prairie Province. And uh, my mother was an elementary school teacher, and my father was uh, a journalist. Uh, I ended up being uh, raised in North Vancouver. And when I was in high school, uh, in grade eight, uh, when I was about 14 years old, I had an English teacher, uh, Kenneth Hegler, and he uh, gave me two books to read, uh, which were not on the, the syllabus. Uh, One was 1984 by George Orwell, and the other one was uh, The Outsider or The Stranger by uh, Albert Camus. And both of those books I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, Neither of them I fully understood at the time, uh, but both of them got me thinking, uh, got me thinking uh, in political terms with Orwell and and got me thinking in existential terms with uh, Camus. And that really launched uh, my entire intellectual trajectory. And then
0: you uh, you went to university to study philosophy.
1: I did. I, I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver to study philosophy, and uh, got absolutely hooked. Uh, I took as many courses as I could, uh, but on the other hand, I was uh, I was disappointed with the kind of philosophy that was being taught there at the time. This was uh, the early to mid 1970s, and the prevailing school of philosophical thought at UBC was uh, a variant of uh, logical positivism, um, particularly the British version. A lot of the professors had been trained uh, at Oxford under philosophers uh, like A.J. Eyre and uh, J.L. Austin. So there was a lot of kind of logical empiricism and um, philosophy of language, uh, ordinary language philosophy, as it was called at the time, and nothing, you know, virtually nothing about the existential philosophers uh, that I was really interested in. Uh, I, I was able to take uh, one course on, on Sartre's philosophy, uh, which, which was great. Uh, we did Being and Nothingness, which is a big and difficult book. And uh, one course on uh, Edmund Husserl, the founder of Phenomenology, we studied his uh, Cartesian meditations. And, and so that was great. I mean, that sort of gave me an insight into what Phenomenology was all about. Uh, but beyond that, there was there was really nothing. Um, and, and I found that, um, you know, quite disappointing. And, and I did my master's at UBC, and of course it was more of the same. It wasn't until I did my PhD at the University of Toronto that I was actually able to study uh, some of these philosophers whom I found, you know, so, so interesting. Uh, um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, Martin Heidegger, um, Sartre, again, Jean-Paul Sartre. And, um, you know, I did my thesis on Heidegger and Sartre and the idea of authenticity. Um, And, and reading some of the people who had really grabbed my attention as an undergraduate but, but doing so, you know, at a higher level and in a more in-depth kind of study, uh, people like Soren Kierkegaard uh, and Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, so that's, that's when things uh, got started in a serious way for me.
0: And at that time, you, um, you, had, uh, you had gained an awareness of the, the kind of larger network of figures in the 30s uh, who were uh, contributing to existentialism but my my understanding is that you had not yet discovered fondaine at that time
1: i hadn't discovered fondaine at that time uh, it wasn't until i finished my phd and i was doing postdoctoral research in paris that i discovered fondaine i was doing research on uh, sartre's theory of history and sartre's theory of history is very much influenced by by hegel the german philosopher hegel so I was doing uh, research into the reception of Hegel's philosophy in France during the 1930s and 40s. Uh, I came across a book by a French Marxist uh, philosopher and sociologist, uh, Henri Lefebvre, who's uh, probably most well known these days for his um, critique of everyday life. Um, and in the 1930s, he was the leading French uh, Marxist intellectual, uh, very much a Hegelian Marxist, and he wrote a book on existentialism uh, that was published in 1946, and it, it's not a very serious book. It was pretty much a book commissioned by uh, the Communist Party of France uh, in order to discredit existentialism. So he had a lot of nasty things to say about Sartre and, and nasty things to say about uh, Camus, but, but re- he really, really despised Sartre. And he kept contrasting Sartre to this other fellow, uh, Benjamin Fondan. And, and he said, you know, that Sartre was a phony and just a poser, whereas Fondant was somebody who actually lived his existential philosophy and took it to the limit. And I was intrigued because I thought, well, who is this person? And he mentioned a book by Dan called uh, The Unhappy Consciousness. Uh, so I, I checked that out and I started reading it and... Um, I, I was quite blown away. Uh, on the one hand, I was uh, bewildered because this was a completely different style of philosophy. It w- was utterly unlike Heidegger and Sartre and any of the other people I was used to. Um, and on the other hand, and, and maybe because it was so uh, off the beaten track, uh, its ideas were, were very radical, uh, very challenging, uh, much much more radical than uh, anything in the academic existentials I've been studying up to that point. So, Bruce, just to make clear, um, after your PhD, you uh, then
0: specialized in, uh, in Sartre, and um, but also also in French philosophy of the twentieth century. You've written um, you've written a book on the French Hegel, uh, and you were an editor. Of, uh, of a journal uh, of Sartre studies, and that it's a little later that you then, then come to back, come back to Fondin. Can you tell us a bit about uh, you know, your thinking about, um, about, about uh, the decision to do this book?
1: Right. Well, I did write about Fondin, uh, half a chapter on Fondin in my book, uh, French Hegel, uh, From Surrealism to Postmodernism. Um, so, you know, I did fit him into that that survey, and I talked about a whole lot of other people in that book, the Surrealists, the, the French Marxists of the 30s and 40s, uh, Georges Bataille, Sartre Derrida, Gilles Deleuze, Michel Foucault. Um, there was kind of a survey of French philosophers who engaged with Hegel in one way or another from about 1900 to, you know, 2000. Um, and... You know, I, that was going to be about it for Fondan, but the book came out and I got a letter from a woman, uh, Monique Joutrin, who uh, lives in Israel and is the president of the Society for Benjamin Fondan Studies. And she invited me to uh, a seminar or a colloquium that takes place in a, a village, and it really is a village, it's tiny uh, in, uh, the French Alps, uh, called, uh, Uh, and, uh, so you go to Nice, and then from Nice, you have to take a train to a place called Adnotte, and then from there, you have to get a taxi at this very winding, and I do mean winding mountain road, and then you're into this village that had fallen into ruins until it was restored by some Belgian uh, hikers and mountaineers after the Second World War, and it's now become a site for all of these academic conferences. So, so I went to this conference, and there were people there who studied fondan uh, from, from Israel, from Romania, from France, from Switzerland, from Belgium, uh, from the United Kingdom, from the United States, uh, and Germany. So uh, there's this international gathering, and uh, this this was quite exciting. And it really gave me a completely different angle on Fondan's philosophy. Uh, for one thing, I've been considering Fondan as a philosopher, solely as a philosopher. But most of the people at this symposium were interested in Fondan as a poet. And uh, certainly posthumously, uh, Fondan has become much more famous as a poet uh, than as a philosopher. Uh, one of his poems in particular, Exodus, uh, which is about the uh, French defeat in 1940 and the hordes of people fleeing, you know, uh, along the roads from the advancing German armies. Uh, th- this poem about the French defeat uh, has become, you know, very famous, and an excerpt of it is at the you know, Yad Vashem uh, uh, Holocaust um, Memorial Museum in, in Jerusalem. Uh, and that's, that's the angle that most of the people at the conference were coming uh, at Fondant from. Uh, so, you know, I had a, you know, a different, more philosophical perspective um, and, you know, the discussions were great and I returned again in 2007 and 2008 and it was those discussions with these other Fondan scholars which uh, prompted me to translate Fondant's, uh philosophical work into English and and the book, you know, as it has, it's, it's very short, I mean, we only have, you know, very few pieces by Fondan in in the book, um, but I'm hoping that this will be the start of uh, of other other translations, other books.
0: Okay, can you tell tell um, us a bit about uh, who he was and uh, why you think um, he's relevant? Um, he's uh,
1: just an, an interesting figure to be uh, revisiting at this point in time. Well, Fondan uh, was uh, Romanian, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, a Romanian Jew. Uh, Fondan is actually a pseudonym. Uh, his his birth last name was uh, Vexler or, or Wexler, um, and uh, he grew up uh, in a, in a small town in Moldavia. Um, uh, then he was in a, the major city of Moldavia uh, called Iași or, or, or Jassy. Um, and uh, went to uh, Bucharest, the capital, uh, supposedly to study law. That's what his family had in mind for him. But when he was in Bucharest, he actually spent most of his time writing for uh, avant-garde literary journals. Uh, He was very interested in French symbolism, uh, Baudelaire, Rimbaud. Those poets were really his touchstones. Uh, Mallarmé, he, he knew very well. He knew his poetry very well, although he didn't like it. Um, And he was also caught up in, you know, the emerging um, literary trends like uh, dataism. There were a lot of Romanian uh, dataists, Tristan Zara being the most famous um, and and surrealism, you know, when it was getting started. And so he was writing literary criticism. He was writing his own poetry. He was writing essays. He also founded a, a theater company. Uh, kind of an avant-garde or experimental theater company called The Island, and they put on a a few productions in Bucharest. Um, That wasn't entirely successful on a number of levels. Uh, The theater company didn't last very long. It was probably too avant-garde for uh, the the general public uh, in Bucharest. Um, And there was also the problem of uh, anti-Semitism. You know, Fondan uh, was, was a Jew, and there's pretty significant uh, anti-Semitism, both amongst the wider public and uh, amongst official circles, which made it difficult for him uh, as an author in Romania. Uh, the other thing was that his, his touchstones, as I said, were, were French. You know, It was French literature. He regarded Romanian literature as a colony of French literature. So he decided to leave the colony and, and go to the motherland, uh, in nineteen twenty three he he went to uh, paris um, and tried to establish himself there as as a writer uh, continued to write for the avant-garde periodicals in Bucharest he was he was their paris correspondent uh, and um, tried to tried to get jobs um, um, had a lot of difficulty in doing so um, and, and went through some some pretty some pretty tough years uh, in in the 1920s as he, he was trying to find his feet uh, in France. And um, so then he moves to France. He moves to France. Um, he's kind of scrambling around, uh, doing this and that. He keeps on writing. Uh, but at a certain point, he stops writing poetry in Romanian. Um, he's, he's going to become a French poet. He starts writing in French. So he, he goes through this transition, and it's also a bit of a personal crisis. And he also, at this time, uh, in the mid-1920s, meets uh, a Russian uh, philosopher who had emigrated to Paris, uh, Lev Shestov. Uh, So there's uh, an evening, um, a party at somebody's house, he meets this guy Shestov. They correspond a bit, but uh, nothing much uh, comes of it until, oh, I guess 1928 or so, uh, the two of them start seeing each other and start corresponding more frequently. And, and Fondan takes a serious interest in Shestov's work and sees Shestov's philosophy as being, you know, the key, you know, the foundation that he himself is going to build on in his own philosophy. And then he starts publishing philosophical essays. They start coming out in 1929. Uh, the first ones are on, on Shestov and on uh, Edmund Husserl, the phenomenologist. The one on Chestov is is laudatory, as you might expect, and the one on Husserl is extremely critical um, because Husserl represents for Fondin and for Chestov this this kind of rationalist tendency in philosophy that everything is going to be uh, based on reason, on logic, on rational categories, and to those rational categories they, they oppose the existential categories of the individual living human being. Um, That's something that they say that that logic and and science simply uh, cannot capture. So that that really marks the beginning of uh, his philosophical career. But he didn't have any training in philosophy, Uh, something that he emphasized time and again. And and he was was very modest about his philosophical abilities, you know, uh, uh, diffident uh, even. Um, But uh, Shestov kept on encouraging him. Uh, Shestov said, you know, you're a philosopher. You came to philosophy, you know, by different routes. Uh, you know, compared to the ordinary, right? You didn't study it in university. You know, you're not an academic, but but you are a, a philosopher. You understand these ideas, and you have a very sharp critical mind. Uh, you're very good at taking apart other people's ideas, which which I think is is, is true. That's that's probably the strongest side of Fondant's philosophies is the critical side, um, and so. You know, Fondan. You know, he he kept going. He he is he published uh, in the same year uh, a major poem called Ulysses, which was his reworking of of the Odyssey. Um, he has a modern Ulysses. You know, like James Joyce, He's, his Ulysses is a modern Ulysses, um, but it's not uh, Leopold Bloom. Uh, although Fondan's Ulysses, like Joyce's, is also Jewish. Uh, there's one line in the poem, uh, Ulysses, uh, you're you're a Jew. Naturally, you're a Jew. Um, and he published a book about uh, Rimbaud, uh, Rambo le voyou. I keep looking for an adequate translation of voyou. It means something like a street tough or a hooligan, um, uh, a, a rough character. Uh, so he publishes his book uh, on on Rimbaud, which is very influenced by Shestov's philosophy, although it is a you know, a critical study of, of Rambo's poetry. Um, so that's 1933, and, and that's, you know, what really uh, launches him in France. And in the meantime, he's also found uh, a steady job. Uh, he's working at an insurance company, uh, the B Insurance Company, or the Abbey Insurance Company. Uh, and uh, that's where he meets uh, the woman who becomes his wife, uh, uh, Geneviève Tissier, who becomes uh, Geneviève Fondan. Um, and yeah, so the two of them get married in 1931, um, and he, he starts, you know, settling in, you know, um, uh, the, the insurance company job, you know, that comes to an end and then he becomes, uh, a screenwriter for, uh, Paramount, a French Paramount, um, and also, you know, kind of an assistant director and general factotum, uh, for Paramount Studios, um he he was always living kind of hand to mouth you know these these jobs were precarious and they weren't very well paid and they were you know subsidizing really his his career as a writer as a poet and an essayist and a philosopher um that and and Genevieve Genevieve she had steady employment so so she was really subsidizing her her husband's career
0: Now before we go in uh in, in further detail about the
1: philosophical
0: work that he was doing in the thirties, there was an in- interesting interlude where he
1: meets a woman, uh, from Argentina and travels there. That's right. Um, so, so that's when he meets, uh, uh, Victoria Ocampo. And I think it was actually at, uh, an evening at Ocampo's that he met, uh, Shustov. Uh, so, so he meets, uh, Victoria Ocampo and she is the editor of a literary review in Argentina called uh uh Sud um I'm not sure about the pronunciation I'm giving it a French pronunciation but it but it means uh no it's not Sud it's Sur S U R um and she's friends with uh uh you know Borges and um, Kaiser Lincoln and, and all of these literary figures of of the 20s and 30s she she sort of knows anybody who's anybody uh, in South America and, and in Europe, um, all kinds of people. Um, she later knows Camus, Henry Miller, um, all kinds of people. And uh, she's really taken with fondant, um and she invites him to Argentina to give a series of lectures. So, so he gives um, two kinds of lectures. He, he gives a lecture on Shestov's philosophy, at the university uh, in Buenos Aires. And he also gives a, a presentation of some surrealist films. Okay. These, these are early uh, surrealist films. Uh, there's, uh, Salvador Dali and, uh, Luis Bunuel's, uh, The Andalusian Dog. He shows that there's the, um, the seashell and the clergyman. Um, there, there's, uh, the, L'Age d'Or, The Golden Age. It's another Bunuel surrealist film. So, so some of the very early surrealist films from the late 1920s and, and early 1930s, uh, he gives a presentation of, of those films to an Argentine audience and explains uh, their significance, uh, what he takes to be their significance. Um, and the friendship that develops between uh, Ocampo and and Fondin, between Victoria Campo and and Fondin, uh is a strong and long lasting one. Uh, she visited fondan in in 1939, uh, just before the outbreak of the war. And uh, she she was a woman of means, and and so you know I guess she had hired the taxi and dropped off Fondan at his place in Paris. And 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 Fondin, as he's getting out of the car, says, you know, wait for a minute, I've got something for you. And he goes into his apartment, he comes back out, and he hands her this uh, thick envelope, uh, you know, stuffed with with papers. And and he says, I want you to take this to Argentina for safekeeping, because he, he knew that uh, war was imminent. And uh, he said to uh, Victoria, uh, this is the most precious thing that I possess. And what, in fact, it was, was his uh, transcription of interviews uh, he had conducted with Lev Shestov, uh, during the course of the 1930s, uh, as well as an essay of his introducing uh, Shestov's philosophy, so so Campbell did take that with her to Argentina, and these interviews were were published um, not until the 1960s. As uh, in-
0: um, Bruce, can you situate uh, both
1: Shestov
0: and Fondan for us in um, the existentialism of the 30s? You say in your uh, terrific introduction um, that. In addition to um, the secular existentialists, there were Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish existentialists—religious existentialists. existentialists. Um, uh, there were, you know, there was a broad network of these figures. So, where do Shestov and Fondan fit in to this bigger, uh, bigger picture?
1: Uh, I, I guess the first thing I would say is that they fit in by not fitting in. Okay. I mean, they, they really don't fit into any of the categories. So, you know, if, if we're looking at uh, Jewish existentialists, um, then, you know, Emmanuel Levinas, you know, at the time, I think you could call him, you know, um, safely enough, you know, some kind of existentialist. Uh, very much influenced by, by Martin Heidegger, uh, at least uh, in the early 1930s. Um, and, and I think after that as well, uh, and Franz Rosenzweig, you know, who was very much influenced by, by Kierkegaard and Martin Buber. You know, so these are prominent Jewish philosophers who are also, in one way or another, existentialists. Uh, Levinas wrote a review of a book that Shestov wrote about Kierkegaard's philosophy, and he said about uh, Shestov, he says, well, you know, Shestov's a philosopher who is a Jew, but he's not really a Jewish philosopher. That is, he, he didn't see uh, Shestov's thought as, as representing the, this, this current of Jewish thinking that goes, you know, all the way back to the Bible in ancient times. Fondan sees things quite differently. Fondan thinks that Chestov is, in fact, the authentic voice of Jewish thought, um, the authentic voice of, you know, a philosophy that is first expressed in the Bible. But Fondan, like Chestov, thinks that that authentic Judaism was lost around the time of the destruction of the Temple, you know, in the year seventy. Uh, and it was already on its way to being lost uh, be, because of uh, Hellenizing influences on on Jewish thought. That is to say that Jewish thought became uh, influenced by Greek philosophy. And uh, for Shestov and, and Fondan, it, it becomes infected by Greek philosophy, corrupted by Greek philosophy. Uh, so, so one of the books that Chestov wrote, uh, it was his last book, it was, it was called Athens or Jerusalem. Uh, So you can have one, you can have Athens and Greek philosophy, the tradition of logic and reason as being the basis of philosophy, or you can have Jerusalem, uh, which is based on, you know, a God who reveals himself in history. And a God who uh, is is actually Um, all-powerful. He's not constrained by the laws of nature because he made the laws of nature. Similarly, he's not constrained by the laws of logic because he made those too. So if God wants to do something that's logically contradictory, he can. You know, uh, for God, all things are are, are possible, including the logically impossible. So Shestov thinks that that is the real Jewish thought, especially as expressed in the, the book of Genesis, and, and Fondant follows them in that. So they are outsiders with respect to Jewish philosophy and, and uh, Jewish ex- existentialism. They're very much in dialogue with it. Uh, Shestov was was friends with Martin Buber. You know, the two of them had many, many conversations, but uh, they didn't agree uh, on, on very much philosophically. Um, now, the Protestant existentialists, uh, these are people who are are largely forgotten right now, but you know, in Germany, you have Karl Barth, B A R T H, and uh, he's very much influenced by by Kierkegaard. Um, and in France, you have uh, Protestants like uh, Denis de Rougemont, uh, who's probably most famous for his book Love in the Western World, and um, and you have and later on, you have Paul Ricoeur. You know, so so you have those people, and then. For, you know, the kind of Catholic existentialism, uh, there's, there's Gabriel Marcel. Um, and Marcel, you know, his style of philosophy in a lot of ways is is closer to Fondant's than it is to, say, you know, uh, Sartre's or, or, or Heidegger's. It's much more personal, uh, much more individual, uh, less academic, less, quote, scientific. Um and uh and so you've got you've got all these different currents and and oh, I should mention one other figure um and that's uh, Jean Val uh W A H L who was the leading Kierkegaard interpreter in France in the 1930s um and he's kind of close to people like you know Ricœur and in, in terms of his approach to uh Kierkegaard he's he's personal friends with Gabriel Marcel uh, and he's also very much influenced by Heidegger. So, so he has a philosophy which is kind of halfway between this very personal individualistic style of Fondan and Gabriel Marcel, and the more academic phenomenological styles of, of Martin Heidegger, or Edmund Husserl. Um, he's trying to walk the line between the, the the those two. So there are these debates amongst all of these different figures uh, in the middle of the 1930s, in particular. There was a Really a ferocious debate about Kierkegaard, um, how to read Kierkegaard, how to interpret him, uh, for, for Shestov and Fondan, especially for Fondan, the only way to properly read and appreciate Kierkegaard is, uh, to interpret him personally. Like, you have to relate what he's writing to your own personal life. And, uh, Kierkegaard's famous book, Fear and Trembling, about Abraham, uh, and Isaac, Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, and, um, you know, how can you commit murder? How can you murder your own son? That seems to go contrary to every ethical law. Uh, And Kierkegaard talks about this teleological suspension of the ethical in the name of some higher religious ideal of of faith. Um, And Fondant says, well, you know, everybody has his own Isaac. Everybody carries his own Isaac within himself. So so you have to find, you know, what for you is that Isaac? What for you would represent this ultimate sacrifice uh, uh, for faith? Um, and in the name of the absurd, right? I mean, there's there's nothing that can rationally justify uh, su- su- such an action. So so for him, you have to take it personally. And he writes an essay that, that lambates uh, Jean Val for taking it academically and looking at Kierkegaard, you know, from the outside rather than jumping into his philosophy. Um, and... He gets into debates with Denis de Rougemont and and, and other people at the same time, so it's, it's very lively and it's very heated. Um, so that's that's one sort of context of debate that's happening within the existentialist camp itself. And as for you know somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre, I mean he's writing his first essays in the middle of the 1930s. You know, like his short essay of "The Transcendence of the Ego" and his sketch for a theory of emotions comes out in 1939, but but sartre is really an unknown i mean he's he's published you know short stories in la nouvelle revue française which is the top you know literary and intellectual journal um so people know him for that and for his novel nausea uh but he's not really known as a philosopher uh he hasn't come on the scene yet and and albert camus the same thing i mean uh camus doesn't publish anything until you know 1942 that's when uh, the stranger the outsider comes out and then 1943 the myth of sisyphus um so existentialism in the 1930s is a very different animal from what it becomes after the Second World War, when people like Sartre and, and Simon de Beauvoir and Camus and Maurice Merleau-Ponty um, come into prominence. So we just step back uh, a moment. So in the mid to late 30s,
0: Fondan starts to write more philosophy. Uh, yeah, It starts to take up more of his time. <clears throat> he also begins to gain traction in certain circles, to the point where, Chestov's translator says to Chestov at some point, "It may be that uh, your philosophy, Chestov, will become best known through the vehicle of Fondain's discussion of it." Um, so, so talk a bit about um, uh, Fondain's philosophy once it develops. So what, what, where does he uh, take uh, both Kierkegaard and uh, and Chestov's ideas, and, and what what is Fondain's unique contribution? To existentialism.
1: Okay, well, there are quite a few things to say about that. Um, one, going back to the remark by Chestov's translator, the guy who translated Chestov into French, uh, Boris de Schloitzer, um, um, Fondin was a leading exponent of Chestov's philosophy in France. His books outsold Chestov's, so. You know, the, the interpreter, the disciple, was better known than the master. Um, and uh, this, you know, kind of intrigued and, I think, irked uh, Shestov uh, a, a little bit. So what did Fondheim have that Shestov didn't? Uh, well, for one thing, he had a literary sensibility, like his his book on, you know, Rambaud. So, you know, there he's taking on one of the the big French poets, I mean, Everybody in France knows and has read Rimbaud. Um, so, um, you know, that's going to have a lot more appeal to a French readership. And the other thing that Fondin does is that he really engages with uh, the the new philosophers that are coming on the scene. Now, Chestov had also written about Husserl, as as Fondin did, but Fondin writes about Heidegger. And Fondin's essay on Heidegger... Uh, when it came out in 1932, I mean, it was one of the very first essays in French about Heidegger. So, again, this is going to, you know, grab the attention of the French public. Um, and the other thing that Fondant was able to do was just philosophy. He was able to uh, take the essence of it, you know, he was able to uh, distill it and express it, you know, through his, his approach to Heidegger or his approach to Kierkegaard um, so that you know he could convey what he took to be the the essential of, of Shestov's philosophy without having to elaborate it on its own and at length, uh, which was the problem with Shestov. Uh, Albert Camus he was also really influenced by Shestov, uh but in, in one place he refers to cheestov 's uh, body of work as as possessing an admirable monotony mm-hmm. Um So, you know, that is a bit of a drawback for Shestov is that his books tend to say the same thing over and over and over again. That's a lot less true for uh, Fondin because he's he's bringing more to the table. Uh, There's also his engagement with Dadaism and surrealism and and other uh, theories of poetry uh, that he brings as well. So his 1938 book, uh, Pseudo Treatise of Aesthetics. Uh, He's very much engaged in a debate and a polemic with the Surrealists about the nature of poetry. And he's influenced by the Italian philosopher Benedetto Croce, who wrote a famous book uh, on aesthetics. Um, And, uh, you know, and and he has his philosophical influences from before he met uh, Shestov, uh, including this guy, Jules de Gaultier, who was one of the early French interpreters of, of Nietzsche's philosophy and uh, Jules de Gaultier says, uh, we all construct these illusions about ourselves and about other people and about society. Uh, we're all a bit like, you know, uh, uh, Flaubert's character, Charles Bovary, he calls it Bovaryism. Um, you know, we're all kind of deceived about ourselves and, and, and others and, and, and society. And, and that also influences Fondant. So, so he's got his own thing that he brings to Chestov's philosophy that makes it more variegated, you know, more interesting. Now, in in terms of the central idea that he takes from Shestov, uh that idea is that uh, logic uh, must be overthrown. That that logic and reason exercise a kind of tyranny over the human being, which is not to say that we're supposed to throw logic and reason and science altogether. It's just that. These things have have taken on a totalizing, dominating role in thought. There are certain areas of human experience that cannot be captured by by logic or some rational way of thinking. And again, this is where Fondan's background as a poet comes into it. You know, there's a a different kind of thinking, a more poetic, more creative uh, thinking, which is able to express. Uh, these elements of individual human existence you know the the passions that we have and and even you know our our sensations and our sense impressions um which you know are kind of fleeting and transitory and have their own kind of intensities logic and reason want to you know reduce those to universal categories you know so that green is green is green is green but for the poet there's the greening of the leaf and the you know um there's the green of the grass that the cows are are grazing on there they're all of these you know different greens with all of their particular subtleties and um, textures um and and then there's you know the experience the person experiencing that that green and so the green isn't so much of a quality of or a thing; it's more of an event, you know. As Fonda says, it's "the greening of the leaf, not 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 the green." So, so there's this, this attempt to to break out of these static, uh, all-encompassing, universal, logical categories, and to think about things and about human life in terms of processes and uh, developments, and in terms of the kind of vital forces and instinctual forces and unconscious forces um that can't be understood or captured by logical thinking and that you know in many instances are opposed uh, to logical thought so there's this kind of war or conflict within each individual human being between the the logical side you know with its universal categories and the irrational unconscious passionate side you know which is is much more individual um
0: so why don't you tell us a bit about the selection of the um, of the pieces uh, that you chose to translate and include in this book? So I should just perhaps begin by asking you. Um, uh, there isn't much Fondan translated into English, and so uh, I, I, perhaps you can clarify that or contextualize that for us.
1: Uh, yeah, there there haven't been any books. Uh, of Fondant's works published in English until now. And uh, last year, uh, NYRB Classics, uh, New York Review of Books Classics, uh, published two books, mine, Existential Monday, and another one called Cinepoems, edited by Leonard Schwartz, uh, with contributions from a, a whole lot of different people. Um, and You know, that's a book of, of Fondan's poetry. So th- these are the first major publications of, of Fondan in English, you know, the first collections of of just Fondan and nothing but fondan and 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 a whole book and up until then you know you to have bits and pieces of Fondan published you know sometimes in literary journals um I think you know there there's an excerpt from Fondan's book uh, Baudelaire and and the abyss that was published in the partisan review you know like in nineteen forty six um mm-hmm. You know, so so bits and pieces here and there, but these are the first books to, you know, feature Fondan uh, in, in English. Um, so sorry, what was no the no? That,
0: that, that's great. So what about the selection of the? Uh, oh, the
1: selection. The yeah. One? Well, um, existential Monday and the Sunday of History. That's that's the title essay of the book, and I picked that one because for a lot of people, including me, uh, that essay is really the the epitome of uh, Fondant's philosophy. It's, you know, it's, it's the summation, uh, as uh, some people like uh, Olivier Salazar-Ferrar put it, you know, it's his philosophical testament. Um, and I think it's it's a, a really good introduction to Fondain's thought, because in this essay, which he, he wrote in early 1944, he contrasts the kind of new wave of existentialism uh, people like Heidegger, but also you know Sartre and, and and Camus. He contrasts those people with the original existentialists. What he takes to be the original existentialists, and and that is to say Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, uh, in the English speaking world, we don't often think of him as a philosopher, but Chestov is a Russian. And of course, he thinks of Dostoevsky as being a philosopher, not just a novelist. So Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, and Chestov. These are the original and authentic existentialists. And he also looks at other figures in the past that he sees as being part of that tradition, like Pascal, you know, who famously says that the heart has its reasons that reason knows not of. Um, and and Tertullian, uh, the um, early uh, Christian writer who also famously or infamously said uh, credo quia absurdum. Um, it's not what he actually said, but that's that's the... Slogan that people take from Tertullian, which means, I believe it because it's absurd. Um, so <clears throat> these are, you know, one group of thinkers, and these, these original existentialists, they're not rationalists. They don't think that reason can solve everything that can tell us everything. And as a matter of fact, according to Fondan and Schesthaus' interpretation, they are anti-rationalists. They are opponents of, of reason. Um, and reason for all of these philosophers is also the enemy of freedom because reason tells you that certain things are and they must be just the way they are um, so that a triangle must have three sides no more, no less two plus two must equal four not five or three Um, so there's this rational necessity and that can get applied in the moral sphere as for example in Immanuel Kant's philosophy um, act only according to a maxim that could serve as a universal law, you know, Kant's categorical imperative. Um, all of that is constraining human freedom. And human freedom is, and this is coming more from Kierkegaard and, and, and Dostoevsky, it's 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 choice. It's when you make a passionate choice, a passionate decision that cannot be rationally explained or rationally uh, justified. Uh, so those are the authentic existential thinkers, and then there are the existentialists right? This is the new thing, existentialism. Um, that's a term that only comes about in the 1930s. And, you know, that, that's Heidegger and Sartre and, and to a lesser degree Camus. Um, and the problem with Heidegger and Sartre uh, for Fondin is that they want to take all these insights from the existential thinkers, especially from Kierkegaard, and they want to use that to construct a new uh, rational, logical system They they want to have a system of existence, you know, and Heidegger's, you know, existential categories, what he calls, you know, existentialia, you know, that's this for uh, Fondant is is just uh, nonsense. Um, And he sees both of them as as capitulating to to logic and to reason and to logical necessity. Um, He takes particular exception to Heidegger's idea that that freedom is freedom for death. I um, mean, this is one of the things that Heidegger talks about in Being in Nothingness is that when we confront our own mortality and realize the inevitability of our end, that's when we actually become free. And um, Fondat says, nonsense. Uh, real freedom would be freedom from death, uh, from the necessity of having to die. Um, and, you know, in, in Sartre's case, he says, you know, Sartre, you know, uh, he's a bright young fellow, uh, but uh, he's read too much Hegel. Um, he's he's confused uh Kierkegaardian you know nothingness and, and and freedom he's confused that with Hegelian nothingness and and negation and Hegelian negation uh is is part of a logical system where you you have a Something that you posit as a thesis and then you have the negation of it or the antithesis. And then somehow reason reconciles those two opposed terms in an all-encompassing rational synthesis. And it's that all-encompassing rational synthesis that Fonda is particularly opposed to. Because he says what looks like a synthesis really means that reason wins and anything that reason can't understand, uh, anything that it can't explain, our passions, our sensations the fleeting transitory experiences that make up most of our subjective life, all of that gets thrown away or suppressed. Can you tell us a bit about the, uh, the other two essays? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, one of the essays, um, that's particularly interesting. Uh, it was published in 1939, um, and it was after the Munich crisis of 1938, but before the outbreak of war in September, 1939. Um, and it's called, the, uh, the sound and the fury or man before history. So he's writing about the crisis in Europe, uh, the rise of Nazism and fascism. Um, there's, you know, the civil war, uh, is, is raging in, in Spain between the Republicans and Franco's, uh, fascists who are backed up by Mussolini and Hitler. Um, the Nazis, you know, they're on the rise in Germany. They, they've taken over the Sudetenland. They had already taken over Austria in 1938. Um, and then there's Mussolini in Italy and his fascism. So, so you know, Europe and the liberal democracies are being menaced by the rise of, of fascism. And there was a an issue of a French periodical, uh, Cahiers du Sud, uh, that comes out of Marseille, Um and it was, it was dealing with this crisis. And, and Fondan's is the final essay in the issue. And he takes kind of an overview, a survey of, of all the other essays. And, and it looks at the crisis as a whole. And he says, you know, some people are saying that the crisis means that we need to go back to our traditional values, in particular the values of Catholicism and, uh, medieval, some medieval version of Catholicism. And for Fondan, that's just not on for any number of reasons, but he doesn't, you know, even, talk about that one very much but a lot of the people who contributed you know marxists and, and and liberal thinkers say that well nazism is this kind of uh irrationality it's a kind of irrationalism and and so what we need is is, is more reason uh, we've got to use reason to combat you know this kind of unreason you know not unlike you know what some people are saying now about you know president trump in the united states you know there's all this irrationality and 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 nonsense, and we need you know reason and knowledge to combat that. And Fonda says, "No, that's that that's wrong. That's wrong. Uh, reason is not the solution. Reason is in fact the problem. Um, and that um, he says that Hitler isn't just reasonable; he's reason himself in person. Uh, and by that he means that uh, Hitler is the embodiment of the the kind of imperialism of reason." its tendency to dominate everything, its tendency to eliminate anything individual, irrational, that stands in its way. Um, And so, you know, Fondant says, uh, let's let's not go that way, and, you know, what does reason tell us to do? Well, reason, ever since the ancient Greeks, has said that, you know, the the real individual, that's, that's your mind, and it's the rational part of the mind, it's the intellect. So the separate intellect, you know, that can be immortal, says Aristotle. So, so, you know, focus on that. And then you can be indifferent to the sufferings of the body. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of physical pain and torture you undergo. And, and Fondan says, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That just becomes an excuse for all of the, you know, the suffering of, of living embodied individuals and uh, their material deprivation and the torture and imprisonment. Um, and fondant says no we 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 can't we can't say that you know we we can't you know legitimize uh this kind of suffering uh through the idea that somehow it doesn't matter because the only part of yourself that that counts is this rational intellectual part so it's it's a very curious essay i mean it's got all all of these tensions in it um but you know what's particularly striking about it is, is that he's He's looking over at at Hitler and everybody's you know saying that nazism is a kind of irrationalism and Fondan's philosophy is also irrationalist and so he's having to distinguish his kind of irrationalism which is all in favor of the individual and the suffering of the individual and and, and trying to arrive at some comprehension of the individual suffering from the inside he's trying to contrast that from from Hitler's irrationalism which uh, Fondant says in his pseudo-treatise of aesthetics is, is irrationalism put to rational use. That, you know, Hitler's got all these things about, you know, blood and race and myth, and yes, it's all irrational, but actually it's all part of a very rationally worked out and strategic program of domination.
0: Interesting. You, you have also chosen to include an essay on boredom.
1: Yes. Now, this essay on boredom was part of uh, Fondin's book about Baudelaire, Baudelaire and the Experience of the Abyss. And uh, in it, uh, Fondin is trying to come to grips with boredom as as a modern phenomenon. And, and he looks at Baudelaire's poetry as being one of the first expressions of uh, this modern kind of boredom. He says, you know, this modern kind of boredom, it's it's not just, you know, Oh, I don't have anything to do. It's it's not like your kids on spring break, you know. Oh, you know, I'm bored. You know, um, nothing to do. It's it's something uh, more profound. It's something which is actually you know metaphysical, and it's something that arises um, out of this modern civilization uh, where things have really become a lot more rational in a lot of ways. I mean, you've got, you've got science, you've got technology. You've got a kind of government, which is trying to organize itself on rational or scientific principles with the civil service or a bureaucracy. Um, you have this kind of rationalization of modern life that um, uh, Max Weber also talks about. And and in this kind of modern existence, it seems that for the individual, um, there's no longer anything left to do, really. And there's nothing significant. This is something that Dostoevsky talks about in his Notes from Underground. Um, and so we feel this boredom, which is a feeling of the insignificance of our own lives, and we don't have any reason for doing anything. So, so then, what do we do? Well, we have to resort to stimulants, um, and you know, Baudelaire, you know, notoriously, his stimulants were hashish and opium, uh, these artificial paradises, as Baudelaire called them. So, so there's that kind of thing, but then there's also uh, cruelty. Uh, cruelty is a stimulant. Um, so, you know, Cleopatra, something that Dostoevsky talks about, you know, Cleopatra sticks, you know, pins into the breasts of her her slaves, you know, in order to hear them scream. And um, Fondant also says, yeah, you know, and you might want to actually spin, uh, stick pins into your own breast uh, because, you know, pain, that kind of suffering, it gives you some kind of consciousness of being alive. So in this modern age where everything is so regulated, everything is so rationally ordered, and you no longer have any passion, there doesn't seem to be any reason for doing anything, individuals and whole societies can find themselves in need of these stimulants, including cruelty and the infliction of suffering either on other people or on themselves. And it's this sort of thing uh, that Fondant says that, that can lead to uh, war, modern warfare, um, Fondan, as
0: you, uh, relate in the introduction, had, um, uh, a very tragic
1: uh, end to his life. Do you want to tell us about, uh, about that? Sure. Um, he had a tragic end to his life, um, and I, I want to say, uh, right from the start here is that, uh, I don't like it when people overemphasize that, um, uh, I think Fondant should be known for his ideas rather than his tragic ending. Um, but uh, he he was turned into uh, the the French uh, authorities, uh, the collaborationist French police. Uh, in in uh, March of of 1944, um, he was arrested. And then he was taken to uh, a, a French uh, camp, uh, Drancy, which is just outside of Paris, and that was kind of a holding camp uh, uh, for people who are then going to be, you know, deported further further east, you know, off off to the concentration camps in Germany and Poland. Um, and a lot of people uh, tried to secure his his release, uh, Jean Paulin. Uh, the editor of the Nouvelle Revue Française uh, prior to the war. Um, he he got a lot of people together, and Émile um, uh, Sirron, uh, uh, the Romanian writer, uh, got a bunch of Romanians together, and, uh, including the um, the Romanian uh, delegate general to France at the time, which was uh, uh, Eugène Ionesco, um, so that they... They got these petitions together and they took them to the German legation, they took them to the French police, and and they were able to uh, secure an agreement that Fondan could be released. But Fondan says, okay, um, but on condition that, that my sister, uh, Lien, is released with me, because Fondan and his sister, Lien, they lived together in the same apartment, they were both arrested at the same time. Well, uh, the authorities uh, refused to release Fondan's sister after all, you know, she was nobody, uh nobody. She wasn't a literary uh personality the way Fondan was. Um, um so uh Fondan and his sister Lean they they were both uh shipped out from Drancy to Auschwitz. And in October 1944, he was he was uh, gashed at uh, Auschwitz uh, Birkenau. Uh uh-huh. He was taken, you were saying, on
0: the second last train.
1: Yes. The set the second last convoy uh, from f- France to Auschwitz. And he died um
0: something like a week or two weeks before the camp was liberated.
1: Uh I was wrong about that. That's what I said in my introduction okay. Okay. And, and uh I've been corrected uh about that since. But uh no, Auschwitz wasn't liberated until nineteen forty-five. Um uh but um yeah, you know, he was taken to, to to Auschwitz, and there are testimonies from different people about what he was like in Auschwitz. Um, apparently, he was still engaging everybody in conversation. Fondan uh, was uh, a talker. He loved to talk. Uh, he loved to visit with people. Uh, pe- people would come to his apartment, and he'd talk and talk and talk with them. You know? uh, Ciaran talks about this, and... Um, and other people as well, um, and and he just kept on talking about philosophy and poetry uh, while he was in Auschwitz. Apparently, he wrote poetry in Auschwitz, but uh, unfortunately, but naturally, uh, that that poetry is lost. Um, some people describe him as as offering, you know, kind of uh, comfort uh, to other prisoners, you know, in in Auschwitz. Um, so it seems that he remained very much himself uh e- e- even in Auschwitz. Um before he was he was captured um he he had written to uh, his wife uh, Genevieve um uh and this was this was um earlier on in the war and 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 he said you know this this war is going to be a chance to see whether I can actually live this existential philosophy. This this war is going to be a test of this existential philosophy. And, and I think that as far as was humanly possible, um, he he did exactly that. He did live his philosophy. And I think to that extent, you know, Henri Lefebvre uh, was right, you know, that Fondant was somebody who, who lived his philosophy and went to the limit of his philosophy. Near the end of the introduction,
0: you write um, about uh, the Contemporary Significance of Fondaine, you write. His work seems to leapfrog over the post-war era to join with ours, bypassing the preoccupations of the post-war phenomenological existentialists. It links up with the critique of reason and of the unified I found in such post-modern thinkers as Deleuze and Derrida. His search for Fondaine's search for the impossible, for the possible beyond all logical possibility anticipates Foucault and Alain Pappadieu. His distrust of ideologies and abstractions, his passion for individual and concrete existence, his ceaseless questioning and searching all speak to our post-utopian disenchanted world. Um, do you want to expand on that?
1: Um, sure. Uh, well, first of all, to start with uh, ideologies. I mean, uh, Fondan 's critique of, of ideologies... Um, you know, of of, of Marxism um, and of fascism, but but of anything that wants to set itself up as a, you know, some kind of universalizing ideology. I mean, he was articulating that critique in uh, the 1930s, and it wasn't really until the 1950s, um, you know, people like Hannah Arendt, you know, The Origins of Totalitarianism, um you know, developed arguments along uh, very uh, similar lines, or or, or Siegmund Bauman, you know, the sociologist. So, so I think in that way, uh, a lot of Fondant's critique was was very uh, prescient. Mm-hmm. Uh, this anti-totalitarian thinking that he was already developing an anti-ideological thinking in his uh, Rambo, the the hooligan. Uh, I'll call it that. Rambo le, le voyou. Uh, he has this one line where he says, you know, there isn't an idea and he has it with a capital I, that doesn't have a thousand murders on its conscience. Hmm. You know, so the people will do all these things in the name of an idea, um, forgetting about the actual living human hmm. individuals who are going to be sacrificed for that idea. Um, so there's, there's that about him. Um, and then th- there is that, you know, distrust or that, you know, critique of reason. Um, Gilles Deleuze, uh, it's also influenced by, by Shestov and, and, you know, Deleuze takes this up in his first important book, his one on Nietzsche, Nietzsche and philosophy in 1962. And, um, you know, very much like Shestov, whom Deleuze references, um, and, and like Fondan he, he opposes, you know, the living being to, um, the rational being or, or what reason would make of that rational being. Um, and and Fondant also, you know, very much anticipating Foucault talks about, and and, and Derrida talks about, you know, the role of reason as, as this kind of you know, policing agent that reason is is surveilling, you know, all of our activities and all of our thoughts, um, and anybody who goes against it dictates is either going to be you know thrown into jail or you know uh, cast out of society. Um so you know there're a lot of things in there that that are similar to the the argument that Foucault develops in his uh, madness and civilization or 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 the history of madness um and um it, getting you know away from you know beyond phenomenology uh you know again uh, in, in that respect I think he's he's very much like uh Foucault and and also like you know deleuze um they they want to have a different approach to to these philosophical problems they they think that phenomenology and phenomenological existentialism make uh, way too many concessions uh to to reason uh to the neglect of you know that wilder you know more irrational uh side of of human existence so you know that they, they bring you know people like Nietzsche back into the picture, Freud, and you know um, depending on what time period we're talking about, Marx, um, and uh, you know trying to reconnect uh, the philosophy to these these vital sort of forces uh, within us and and to you know the material aspects of human existence, um, and I think that you know Fonda is is a much better fit with that. It's much more compatible with that uh, than, you know, Sartre and Beauvoir and, and, and Merleau-Ponty. You know, I've written one essay about this, uh, comparing uh, Fondin and Chestov and, and uh, Deleuze on uh, the figure of the private thinker. Uh, that's a phrase that comes from Kierkegaard. Uh, in Kierkegaard's book, Repetition, he, he makes a contrast between the, uh, the public philosopher, uh, Hegel, who's state-appointed and is really a spokesperson for state ideology, and the private thinker, and the private thinker that Kierkegaard refers to is Job, you know, and there's Job who's lost everything, you know, all of his cattle, all of his wealth and possessions, and, and his family, you know, his wife and all of his children, they've all been taken away from him. Um, and Kierkegaard says, well, if you really want to understand something about human existence, go to Job rather than Hegel. Um and that's that's a theme that Chestov develops and, and that uh, Deleuze picks up on uh as as well. Uh so so you know the, the, the whole existential phenomenological period, to which by the way I'm very attached myself. I mean as you said I was I was one of the editors of SART Studies International for a decade. Um but that, that whole period you know can perhaps be regarded as a parenthesis and then there's this this link, you know, between some of the th- thinkers of the 1930s and the thinkers who start to come to prominence in the 1960s, like uh, Deleuze and Foucault and Derrida.
0: Um, so, Bruce, um, maybe to wrap up, you can tell us very briefly about where you've gone since uh, since working on this book.
1: Um, I've gone really in in, in two directions. Uh, one is to take this. Critique of logic and of logical necessity, and to examine that uh, more closely and in more depth. That's something that I'm working on right now. Uh, so going back to Aristotle, I'm going back to you know Aristotle's discussions of necessity in Book Five of, of Metaphysics. Um, and uh, looking at, you know, why is it that logical necessity seems to be the most necessary kind of necessity mm. rather than vital necessity, existential necessity or material necessity. Uh, so, you know, I want to look at these different senses of necessity, the existential necessity that has to do with what you need to do in order to live your own life. Um, that's something developed by Shostov and Fondin. Um Then there's, you know, the idea of material necessity, uh, that uh, Marx talks about in Capital. He has this contrast, you know, the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom. So as long as we're governed by necessity, then we're not free. Uh, there's that whole line that I want to look at and develop, uh, which goes contrary to the philosophical lineage from Kant. You know, Kant says, obedience to a law one gives oneself is perfect freedom, uh, if that law, you know, comes from reason. So obeying rational necessity is freedom. Um and other people who sort of build on that tradition, in, including, you know, to some extent, people like Sartre, you know, so so, so there are those two opposed sides that I want to look at. Um, the other thing that I'm working on, and uh, this is only tangentially related to Fondan, is is walking, uh, walking in philosophy. That's something that I started working on in a serious way about the same time that I started the project of translating Fondan into English um and so that's looking at walking as uh embodied experience uh you know embodied consciousness um my joke is that you know in 1637 descartes invented the mind-body problem philosophers have been trying to solve it ever since but the problem is that most of their thinking about it has been done while they've been sitting down right if you get up and start walking then um the relations between mind and body become a lot clearer to you Mm -hmm. so so I've, I've been developing something, uh, about that in relation to, uh, Descartes. Um, I did a walk, uh, near Dean Les Bains, which is the home of Pierre Gassendi, uh, who said in response to Descartes, I think therefore I am, uh, I walk therefore I am, hmm. ambulo ergo sum. Um, I've walked in Nietzsche's footsteps in Sils Maria in Switzerland, uh, the place where he had his, his vision of the eternal return of the same, hmm. um. I walked in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's footsteps in, in Somerset in England, uh, trying to uh, get an idea of the connection between Coleridge's walking through that countryside and uh, his uh, poetic uh, imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there are all these different ways of exploring uh, different aspects of, of mind in relation to uh, the body, in relation to how they're embodied. As that comes out, Uh, in walking in particular so looking at walking is the sort of key experience that sheds some light on all these questions
0: well that's terrific Uh, Bruce I look forward to uh, to to reading those those pieces and I want to thank you
1: uh, for taking the time out to uh, chat with me today it's been my pleasure thanks very much Robert thank you